0: This is Manifest Mindset, where we delve into our true passions, inspire the best out of ourselves, and live our life with true intention every single
1: day. All right, so welcome back to another episode. Um, today we're back again with me and Nick. So Nick, how are you doing? It's a it's a late Sunday night. Um, how are you holding up?
0: It is, it is. Now, uh, Bob, I'll be honest with you, it's a uh, less late Sunday night than it is for... Than it is for you um so i'm out in uh, arizona right now have a vacation out here doing a bunch of hiking the nice beautiful red rocks some fantastic scenery so it's only eight o'clock out my way so i'm hanging right in there
1: okay wow so are you outside like in the woods right now
0: no i'm not right now i'm on inside i'm being a, a little domestic punk um so now i was outside all day but uh back inside right now
1: okay yeah that's awesome Um, So I thought today we'll just keep it a little bit shorter episode um, since it's a little bit later on my side. Absolutely. I want to talk about, so there was this interesting Facebook post that I saw um, on Facebook about physical therapy and I shared it with you and you thought it was a great idea to to just talk about it on the podcast. Absolutely. Now uh, I think for today's episode we'll just keep it probably PT focused um, just because of the time constraint. Um, But, Basically, there was a picture that was posted by um, Sandy Hilton, which is she's like a renowned pain science person. She's like well known in the pain science world. She put uh, a Facebook post um, on in the in the physical therapy student group, and basically the description says, as seen on Twitter, a slide from a presentation by Chad Cook that the. There are PT employers and certifications built on these concepts, and still they aren't holding up to the study. And basically what um, the slide is from the presentation is there's Chad Cook, and Chad Cook, for those who don't know, he's he's like, um, I think he's the dean at Duke.
0: Correct. Correct. Well done, Bob. Absolutely.
1: He's the dean for the PT um, person at Duke University. He's, he's like a well Um, studied and astute guy. He's well-versed in the PT realm. Um, And basically, it's just a picture of him. And in the back, there's like all like a whiteboard. And the title of the whiteboard says made up diagnosis. Um, And then it says not accepted syndromes that are not recognized. And then there's this whole list. So starting from the top, I'm just going to read the list. It's a short list. Um, and and
0: Bob, Bob, for those of us who are have some PT knowledge out there, give us just a little bit of a pause between each one so we can really take this in, soak this in for the value, because um, I'm willing to bet that most of us at some point have included probably not all of these, but at least one of these in a diagnostic list for our patients.
1: Yeah. Um, so just to reiterate, um, the people that posted these, so um, Sandy Hilton and Chad Cook, these are very They're really smart people. They're they're smarter than us. Well, smarter than me, at least. I don't know about you, Nick.
0: (laughs) Time will only tell, my friend.
1: Time time will only tell. So um, the first one is sacral iliac joint dysfunction. So SI joint dysfunction. Um, Basically what that is is basically your pelvis is hurting. That's what that is. (laughs) uh, I
0: I love the simplification.
1: Yeah, all right, um, that's probably the only one that I'm going to simplify, but uh, that's that's one, so SIJ dysfunction, scapular dyskinesia, altered cranial sacral rhythm, so basically the bones in your face, um, T4 syndrome, piriformis syndrome, adverse neurodynamics, and first rib dysfunction, um, and that's pretty much the picture. And this post on Facebook had around like 200, 200, likes. Yeah, I think around 200 likes and like a bunch of hundreds of comments. of just people, um, debating back and forth. And I, I sent this picture to a professor and to, to you. Um, and I, I wanted to hear your decision because when I first read this slide or when I first read this post in general, um, I was like, Oh. Wow, that's that's like a culture shock to me. Like in in a PT sense, that's like a super culture shock to me um, because these are things that I learned in school and they 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 come, um, I think they come across in my clinical reasoning. Um, but I'd I love to hear your thoughts first, Nick.
0: Absolutely, Bob. And I think, you know, when we read these lists and we see anything post online, I think it's important to remember that it's not only so easy, but it's automatic that we have our own biases from our clinical practice from treating our patients from our clinical reasoning so far that we bring it into this perspective that we say, okay, this is what I thought. Okay. I can kind of see how like those two things, it's kind of hokey pokey, whatever, but this, I'm really? sure? sure that's made up. That, that seems pretty damn real to me. I feel like I've, I've felt something. I feel like I've done something like this. You know, I thought this, and my patient got better. Um, so I think it's easy to bring our own biases into it and we have to, to really be truly good at clinical reasoning, you have to take a step out of that for sort of assessment and allow ourselves to have a little bit of cognitive dissonance. So when I first read this list, I'm gonna talk about my biases um and kind of um what I went with. Um things that I was surprised were on this list. I was surprised that piriform syndrome was on this list. Um you know we hear about kind of tight piriformis quote unquote um, friction with that under the sciatic nerve and interference with that. In school, we even learn about a certain percentage of people that have a alteration genetically of their sciatic nerve that is more likely to predispose them to irritation with the piriformis muscle. So at first, that was a surprise. The other big money maker that was a surprise for me is adverse neural tension because we see that in a lot of people. We have these upper limb, lower limb, neurodynamic tests. Where we kind of test the willingness of nerves to move throughout the body through different points of restriction. Nerves being eighty percent connective tissue, they move, slide, and glide. And we, we've studied this; we know this. Here is let's focus on diagnosis. Well, actually, before I get to that, Bob, things are was like, "Yeah, dude, that makes sense. I can see that." The whole craniosacral rhythm—that's uh, that's brought on by um, craniosacral therapy, which in theory. In theory, I believe it was Dr. Upledger, way back in the day, he was doing some therapy with people, and he was going in, um, cutting into the spinal cord for surgeries, and he saw this fluid that he claimed was like, oh, and it it was moving, it was oscillating throughout their spine at a very certain rate. His science behind this was, okay, people who were like hyper or whatever, it's moving too quick. People who were slow and lethargic was a little too slow. His theory was he could give you a big fat pillow placebo by putting his fingers on your skull and tell you that he was with the weight of putting his finger down and just the gravity of the nickel on your head with that much pressure, you can manipulate and move your bones. Bob, even on bones that move well, even on bones that, you know, manipulate and move frequently that are meant to move, not fully suture bones, they do not move with that little bit of pressure. So can I call BS on that one? Yeah. Now, going back to my previous thought, we have to think about the word diagnosis for this. And in my mind, there's a diagnosis, other than there are contributing factors. Would you agree? Yes. So we can we can kind of view those things as two separate things. Diagnosis again, whether it's a medical diagnosis in terms of what's the exact pathophysiology going on. Or is it a physical therapy movement-based diagnosis? But either way, the diagnosis is can evolve really what's exactly going on, what's the primary pain generator, what's the major issue at hand, the root cause. I actually agree with them for SI joint dysfunction. And here's why I tell you this, even though we learn all about it at school. So you, you agree have,
1: about what, what I, I, side
0: I agree about SI joint dysfunction being BS for a diagnosis. Yes. I agree with it being a, a factor involved. Look at the SI joint and clinical studies of this joint, which our best understanding was with pe- was people volunteering for whatever to literally have pins stuck in their SI joint, metal pins while they're undergoing movement, and that yes, that will create SI joint pain. But to look at the kinematics to look at, okay, how much does the SI joint really move? And what they found by these studies was that everybody had a huge amount of variability, there was no consistency, and in many motions, there was very, very little movement, normal. So we have no correlative factors to say if there's too much or too little movement, and does that correlate to any kind of pain dysfunction? Here's what we do now. The SI joint is made for to distribute force up and down the kinematic chain. The so the two parts of the bone, the sacrum, mimics kind of what happens from the spine and above coming down. And the ilium, the hips, mimic what happens is the looks and these coming up, and it's where they meet that, let's say, that there are other movement patterns they can cause pain there. But that's not the pain generator. That's not the major issue. The major issue isn't in the joint itself. The major issue is how a person moves. What, what do you think about that, Bob?
1: I... I agree with you. So basically what you're saying is, is how, um, so it's not the actual source of the issue. So like these diagnoses aren't actual the source of the issue. It's not actually the main contributor to what's causing the symptoms of the person's, um, the, the person's pain in general. Is that, is that basically what you're getting yeah, at? absolutely. So I mean, b- before like I add anything further, um, I just want to also add that this is just like a snippet of the whole presentation that um, Chad Cook was doing on, on, oh, on the website. Um, so I just want to add that like as as a precursor to like what we're just talking about. And I don't like want to say that we're, we're headline reading and just looking at this and being, yes, we agree with this. No, we don't agree with that or, or sharing our biases in general. Um, and then I think that's an important point to make. Um, but no, I, I completely agree with you. Um, I, I think the biggest reason why I was so eager to, to hear your thoughts, and in other people's belts was because um most of these things we we learned in school uh, piriform syndrome uh uh adverse neural tension um uh dyskinesia all these things we learn in school like we have tests for them we have um yeah we have special tests for them we have quote-unquote treatments for them um, so i thought it was just interesting on how there was this this divide in education and 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 how people practice
0: does that make sense absolutely it, it does and it's it's interesting when we look back at the history of you know what's the validity of all these tests and everything like for example i don't want to go too down a rabbit hole so i'll be very cautious in my wording but the vertebral artery test when we test the vertebral artery it's not recommended we actually do that test in clinical practice very rarely however We still learn it in school for the sake of, okay, let's have an exercise where we can understand, hey, in this position, what might it possibly do to this anatomical structure and go through the thought process. So I think a lot of times some of the argument back and forth by faculty teaching this is, okay, this may not be perfect, but where can it lead us in the direction of critical thinking? I I think we need to make sure that the element of the discussion is very transparent in our education.
1: Yeah, no, I, I agree. Um, yeah, I, I, I agree. But one thing also I want to add on top of what you were just saying is, um, sometimes like there, there's this argument, like you said, between like professors teaching stuff. Um, and and I personally feel like in physical therapy, especially, it's, it's very easy to just fall into, um, black and white. Um, just like a a division of being black or white, um, just, either do this or not do this um what was that commercial with like the taco girl and she says why not do both do you know what i'm talking about no i feel like i probably should Um, i feel like at
0: least i I feel like at least half the people listening to this are going to know about your taco girl
1: okay (laughs) but yeah no i i personally feel like like i mean based on my limited experience um why can't we just be in the gray zone and be happy with that and just move the profession forward in general um, rather than debating whether it's black or white and then not actually getting anywhere. Maybe I'm looking at it like from a smaller lens and that's not what's actually happening, but that's what I personally feel like.
0: Um, you know, Bob, I, I love your point, And I love your point because I partially disagree with you. Okay. Um, I think that overall, I completely agree. I think clinical practice, I think reasoning is so much more black and white. But I think that this post by Chad Cook, and that was further posted on after that on the Facebook group, I think the rationale for that and the really the drive of saying that these are not acceptable is that students were being too much in the gray area. They were saying, they were seeing that, ooh, three out of the five tests by Lancet were positive for SI joint dysfunction. So therefore, that must be my diagnosis, and therefore, that must be the root cause. Or somebody did a piriformis stretch, and that helped their symptoms. So therefore, they must have piriformis syndrome. And that's the end of the story. That's where they stop. Sure. So I think that it, it's a, the kind of critical thinking part of this and why they brought this up is not to say that, hey, these cannot – some of these may be factors. They may, and that's fine but they cannot be exclusively your diagnosis because if you say that you're stopping the process of your critical, your clinical reasoning.
1: Yeah. So just for, for us to clarify, so when I say like black and white or the gray zone, so what you were referencing, I, I felt like you were arguing for the black and white. That So basically um, you do a test for thoracic outlet syndrome or you do a test for whatever, and they're positive, And then, you're 100% sure that they have that di- quote-unquote diagnosis. Um, I feel like that's black and white. But if you're in the gray zone, they, they get a positive test, you do other things, um, and that it may be that diagnosis, it may be not that that diagnosis, maybe something else that's contributing. Um, that's what I personally feel like is the gray zone that people, I feel like, should be in.
0: And I'm taking this a step further, where I'm thinking that many in school were taught the black and white. We're taught that, hey, you do these tests if three or five of them are positive, then it's 100% this. But I'm thinking that, hey, this really is a gray zone because just because you have this doesn't mean you understand the full picture behind it and why that keeps occurring for people. So I think that we do need to look, even when we do have a very, very big, big, large arrow, get that back and say, why is the arrow even there?
1: Yeah. Um, I don't know if one of the professors told me this, I, I don't know who it was, but basically he said that he or she said that, um, you don't have MRI or x-ray vision. And even if you did, you're still going to be wrong like 90% of the time. Um, so I think that's also an important point that and on why being in the gray zone, um, just, just having that critical thinking of, Oh, it's maybe it's this, maybe it's not that. Um, and just doing things that I, I personally feel like that this guided my practice a lot, especially during my few, first few clinicals, was just trying to figure out ways on how to turn off the, the symptoms and turn on the symptoms. That way you're not actually focusing on the diagnosis, but instead you're focusing on, on the symptoms of whatever may be contributing to the patient and then focusing on those symptoms and then affecting the patient's life in, as a whole to reduce the symptoms and bring back their function. What are your
0: thoughts on that? Absolutely, Bob. And um, I love the part about that, again, that you said, turn them on, turn them off, for the point of educating the patient and for the point of proving to yourself that, hey, there's validity in this. Whether it's truly the ultimate best very often in the world of physical therapy and health and movement of the human body in general, it's less of here is the one absolute only and best answer. It is more often, here are many different treatment options we can go down. And some may be slightly more effective than others. However, these may all work really well for you. And it's not always one goal and answer. And I think there are a lot of pathways to get there. And, but we have to couple the patient's belief with our belief in it too, that we've talked about. So Bob, I completely agree.
1: Um, this is like a, a side to end story, but um, based off what you said. Um, so a couple of months ago, we had a, a McKenzie course a part A McKenzie course at Ithaca College, so, so where we go to school or where you, you yep. to go to school. Um, and there was one patient that... So basically how the the McKenzie procedure goes is you first you go through a series of progressions of forces in various directions to, to help relieve symptoms from the patient. Um, so the first step is posture. So we had live patients come in, and the instructor sat him down, and this guy... The set down was, was slumped um, in, posture and in posture, in his sitting posture. And what the instructor did was he corrected his posture, made him sit there for like three seconds. The guy said, oh, I feel a little bit better. And then what he did after that, which I don't think I'll forget, is he bought him to poor posture. And he asked him how he felt. He said, oh, I felt uh, maybe a little bit worse. And then he did that like three or four times. And the patient said, "Oh, maybe you're on to something here." And, <laughs> and the whole the whole class laughed, and he realized that he had to to work on something like that to to help relieve his symptoms. And I got to follow up with that patient um, after the class, and we, his postures got better from that, just that small example, and um, his symptoms actually decreased by a lot.
0: That's fantastic, and you know, it's like you said, you're putting it back in their hands you're you're allowing you know the answer you already know the answer by the test by the clinical practice by the patterns you're seeing and what you're testing but you're showing them telling them you're showing them and you're allowing them to arrive at the aha moment for themselves because when they arrive at at themselves experientially that's motivating to actually make a change that oh a doctor said i got a prescription for something and do something
1: Yeah, I think, like, to tie a knot on this whole thing is is basically what you just said is is even if we're in the gray zone or even if we're we're debating about, like, what exact diagnosis could be causing a problem, the the patient in the end doesn't doesn't really care as long as you can help them relieve their symptoms and and make them satisfied, um, no matter what you call it or no matter, like, even if if you're between, like, two different diagnoses, as long as you can get the patient better. That's what I feel Matters at the end rather than debating Absolutely. whether it's T four syndrome or um, a trigger point stuff. Um, but that's that's my opinion. Do you have any further thoughts on that? Well, I'd say,
0: and again, Bob, I think this is I'm reiterating really, like, something you already believe, but I haven't said explicitly that we're kind of getting them better their symptoms, better, but also making them more resilient for the future. Also making sure that we add in that aspect of prevention that's really worth the power treatment. And so that we add in that prevention at the end
1: too. Yeah, um, to add on to, to what you just said, and I keep on adding on to what you say because you're just you're just so brilliant, Nick. Oh, <laughs> hey, Bob,
0: you're, fuel, you're fueling the fire, man. It that uh, it goes right back at you, brother.
1: <laughs> but um, there's just things that Jeff Moore said. Um, I think I told you this maybe on this podcast. I'm not sure, um, but one thing that um, Jeff Moore, so he's like a, a He's an evidence-in-motion faculty person um, that has his own like company that trains physical therapy, which is ICE. Um, one thing that he says that uh, made me really fall in love with his process is basically you'd always ask the patient at the end um, of the initial eval or whatever, so, so Doris, so Sally, how strong do you think I can make you before you leave this clinic? So it, it always puts that question of, how how much stronger can I actually get you before you leave? So you're stronger, you're more resilient. I think we actually talked about this last week or two weeks ago, but any thoughts, Nick?
0: You know, it's interesting, Bob, um, because cause it gets, cause what you're actually asking them is you're not asking them because you want to know the answer. You, I mean, you want to know the answer a little bit. You want to know what their self-efficacy is because it's much more about them than it is you, but it's about how much do you invest in this process? What do you believe is possible? And by asking them to consider what they believe is possible, even if they give you a half-assed answer, even if they give you a poor answer, like, oh, not much. You, for a second, made them think about what could be possible for themselves. And so I think we have to take this with a grain of salt. I think there are some patients that we might get them kind of down. It's like, oh, you could do nothing. But I think for most patients, open ended questions like this about exploring what is your potential. I think it's fantastic to catalyze the process of healing.
1: Yeah, definitely. Um and I think that's also like planting the seed even if even if they're they have low self esteem or low motivation or they're that Debbie downer, it does plant that seed of, oh, you're gonna try to get me stronger, even if they're not like verbally saying it. Yeah. I'm sure in the back of the mind that's that's something that's that's appearing. Absolutely,
0: and it it gives you a tool to revisit the conversation later. If that's an initial eval and they don't take big root of that, then what do you do? You show them a little bit of evidence each time along the way that, hey, you are progressing, and both, I mean, evidence in terms of short numbers, but also just the way you're reacting and behaving, that's going to get them to buy in even
1: more. Yeah, definitely. Um, I think, basically, this whole... What, twenty twenty minute conversation we had so far um uh, while we talked about Chad Cook's presentation slide his one slide um, yep. um, i I think it included now this disagree uh agree with me next um is that basically the diagnosis doesn't really doesn't really matter um whatever you call it um as long as you can help the patient get better now m- maybe that was too simplified but but let's let's hear your thoughts next.
0: I think you may have simplified it a bit too much, Bob. Um, I think I think oftentimes we pin, we take a pin on a diagnosis and say, this is your issue too early, when really all diagnoses, most diagnoses, exist as a spectrum of influences. And so I think it's more important to understand the spectrum of influences, understand, and not just say that, oh, guys, it's okay to be in the gray area, hippy-dippy float around. No, you have to understand the evidence and know where the evidence is pointing and have a, a big kind of tool bag of knowing what to do for different people. But I think it is, like you said, in point to, I think of the right words for this, to, to understand all the factors and to say with this patient, how can I quote unquote, turn on or turn off your symptoms? And how can we engage in dialogue around that to empower you so that, Hey, maybe they're their own experiment. Maybe they're out of the clinic and they noticed, Ooh, I don't feel too good. Okay, my my, my PT did this and that and that with me. Let me try this. Oh wait, sweet! I can. It's not perfect, but it's a little bit better. Let me keep playing with that. And what I love is when my highly motivated patients come in on my second or third day, and they say, "You know, Nick, um, this thing that we did is working pretty well, but actually, uh, I was feeling this and I tweaked it. I changed it. And it actually feels even better." Yes, I love that because that what that is is that combining their intuitive language of their body. It's my understanding and my understanding of their body so I can further understand them even better and be on a journey with them in their healing process.
1: Wow, yeah, that I think that would be amazing if uh if, if a highly motivated patient came in like that. Uh, just adding more to what you already give them. Like it, it shows that they did their homework. Now another side story back to that patient from that part A, um, that, that actually feeds off what you just said. Um, so this guy with the, the, uh, the back pain with the poor posture, um, now I'm not saying that poor posture contributes to everything that,
0: uh, uh but, but in back. this one, in this one specific case.
1: Yeah. But so, so basically, um, in the course, all the participants gave, were given uh, a lumbar roll. So basically a lumbar roll is basically something you put on a chair or your car seat and it helps with you. It helps with your posture. Um. And the instructor actually tested it in on, with him or on him um, in the course, and he felt a little bit better with that. So we finished the hour eval, and he was he left, but he forgot the lumbar roll. And nobody realized that he forgot the lumbar roll until he came back, and he told us all that he forgot the lumbar roll. But he goes to his bag and pulls out three lumps of towels that are tied together, that mimic the lumbar roll, and oh, yeah. he says to um, he says to the instructor, "Oh, I, I forgot the lumbar roll, but I made this." And everybody just started clapping, and and it was a great moment. Um, that basically what what you just said. So that was that shows that buy-in from the patient um, because they know it'll work.
0: Bob, I have another story. Side tangent off of this. Um, unfortunately, it's not one from a uh, a professor, a colleague. Um, She was working with a patient back in the day, a while ago, and also gave a lumbar roll. Now, there was uh, some language barriers and a hard time with different dialects and everything. So anyways, she runs into this patient um, out in the public, and he has a lumbar roll. He's sitting down. She sees he has a lumbar roll. It's behind his back, and there's a little buckle that comes with it, and it's buckled around his waist. So what does he do? He stands up, and this buckle is still buckled around his waist. He still has a lumbar roll around the back of his lumbar spine, but he's just out about walking around everywhere. And so, I mean, talk about there might have been poor communication and poor understanding about, hey, this doesn't really do anything when you're standing up, walking around, not sitting down. But it was incredibly funny, and it does show the power of the placebo effect and buy-in this patient was willing to look like a complete fool walking around
1: everywhere with a pillow
0: on his back outside his clothes
1: <laughs> it's all about the patient buy-in if you can get the patient's buy-in and you're generally in the right direction the patient will get better that's that's what i really believe um
0: and, you know this summer bob I was described by one to one of my mentors um that you know he says there are three groups of people in physical therapy and patients There are those that probably about, he said, probably about 60 to 65% of people will get better by A, natural history alone, and decreasing the disease, whatever process is going on, whether pathway anatomical or otherwise. And just a little bit of kind of whenever intervention, that's like, oh, that's pretty good around that area. There's another kind of 25% of people that will get better. Not with just natural history, not with just and yeah, do a few things, but with, with a fairly skilled physical therapist, somebody who, you know, who knows the that part of the body pretty well and can work with and can get a patient's buy-in. Other than 10% of people really need somebody very specific who understand deeply exactly what's going on and can couple that with the entire thing. And I, I believe that again I'm not quoting anybody on exact numbers. I believe this is true for our clinical practice in that a lot of people do get that buying and help from natural history alone and from help with that. And sometimes our job, I'll quote a, a doctor that I work with a lot, sometimes our job is to sit around and dance, to sit around, dance, entertain while time heals. And oftentimes, it's with the people that we recognize that doesn't work that we need to get really detailed. So I think that we have a great opportunity ahead of us, and I think that there's a lot we can do. And Bob, I've enjoyed this conversation immensely.
1: Yeah, this conversation fires me up um, just about our professor in general. So thank you for this great conversation. Um, Nick, I I know this week we didn't talk about any accountability stuff, uh, but do you think it'll be okay for us to talk about it next time we meet for a podcast? Bob, come in next time with an agenda that
0: you know you're doing, and if that happens, I am very okay with it.
1: Perfect. I think that that's a great spot to end this episode. Uh, We talked a lot about PT, and I'm fired up in general. Uh, Maybe you're fired up. Who knows? Uh, Oh,
0: Absolutely, man. You know, this just is uh, is one of my many passions, one of my many joys, and uh, it's been a pleasure doing this podcast with you for well over a year, Bob. Perfect
1: you want to add anything else before we sign off?
0: No, man, I tell you.
1: All right, well, thank you guys for listening. Thank you, Mick, for your time, um, and I'll see you next week.